0: Cody Peeps, welcome to episode 14 of the Ingressive Voices podcast with your host, Wayne Ashley. This episode is going to be very interesting because we actually get to cover the historic things that have happened this week. This is the last week of June, and on June the 26th and June the 27th, we had our first ever debate cycle of the 2020 elections. So the Democratic Party, as you may well know, has a slew of candidates seeking the nomination for president. 25 major level candidates in all at this point. And of those 25, 20 actually qualified to be in the first ever set of debates. So it's been a circus for the Democratic Party, with so many people coming in, so much so much to cover in terms of topics with policy and everything else. And a lot of folks, um, you know, out there, you know, have had their lives to live and may not have the time to really look into everything or or have watched both of the debates. So hopefully this episode of the podcast can be a great resource for folks such as that that didn't have a chance to really get into the weeds of everything. We're going to cover a little bit and just give some, some impressions. Of course, that's all coming from me, uh, the, the viewpoint of a red state progressive and of someone that is of color and someone that that has diverse perspectives and in mind. So, so I bring all of that to my analysis of, of what happened in these debates. So hopefully you will see some value in that or be able to take the information that you gain from this episode of the podcast and compare it with other incredible resources that are out there, because there's plenty of resources out there. And of course, the great thing about having the debates all over YouTube, uh, several podcasts, I know um, the Lawrence O'Donnell podcast and the Rachel Maddow podcast have audio of the debate as well. If you if you really want to, if you're interested to catch uh, either of the nights of the debate, you can listen to them via podcast as well. So there's lots of great resources there uh, where you can catch the information for yourself and make your own judgments. But... What we're going to do here for this for this episode uh, is just kind of go through, uh, name all of the candidates, and and discuss who all participated in the debate, and just give some of the highlights uh, that happened and an overall flow of the debate. So so obviously this is from what I can remember because it was four hours of uh, of, of pretty intense television, but let's give it a try. So, so this is our wrap up of the first Democratic, debate, uh, Democratic nomination debate of the 2020 election cycle for president. So back to night one of the Democratic debate. It was very exciting. Uh, these debates took place in Miami, Florida, uh, hosted by several of the NBC News folks, including uh, Savannah Guthrie, Rachel Maddow, uh, Lester Holt, uh, Jose diaz Art. Uh, so, so really uh, very fine. Uh, Chuck Todd, very fine. Uh, panel of moderators there. Uh, and you can judge for yourself when you listen how well they did on that. Uh, but, you know, it was a lot to handle. And so it's good to have experienced folks there because having 10 candidates on the stage and trying to cover issues, making sure that everyone is able to speak is, is a really tough job. It, it really is. Uh, and that was pretty apparent from the debate stage. But so for the first debate here, uh, here are the 10 candidates that participated in Wednesday night's debate, night one. We had Mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, Ohio Congressperson Tim Ryan, former San Antonio Mayor and HUD Secretary Julian Castro, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, Hawaii Congressperson Tulsi Gabbard, Governor of Washington State Jay Inslee, and former Maryland Congressperson John Delaney. So, so those are the 10 folks that participated in uh, night one of the debate. So going into this first night of the debate, it's pretty clear that there are five candidates that are considered what we call the top tier group. Those folks are former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Kamala Harris, and Mayor uh, of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. So of those five people in night one of the debate, it's only Senator Elizabeth Warren that's against the other candidates. So the four, the other four folks are for the next evening. So Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, naturally was the focus of this first night of the debate. And as a result, you know, she got quite a bit of uh, speaking time. And it's it gives it a different personality when, you know, like I said, the top-tier folks are so unevenly split. And, and that was pretty apparent, even though it was the first night. we couldn't possibly know how the second night would go at this point. But the, the first night of the debates was was very much policy focused and, and, and the, the center of gravity really was uh, you know at least at the start around Senator Warren. But things were very interesting in this first debate. So here's kind of some things of what happened. Uh, as we said, with the 10 candidates, It was uh, clearly, you know, people were wondering if they were going to go after President Trump, because that's kind of the obvious thing to do in such a debate, or if they were going to focus more on, you know, their ideas and their policy issues, Uh, and what kind of happened was... They really didn't focus a lot on President Trump. You know, the candidates really wanted to make sure to get their name out there and any policies and things that they have that are special to bring to the table in this first debate. And so that's what happened. Uh, Senator Liz Blorn got a lot of speaking time. But that's not to say that the other candidates did not have uh, important moments. So we're just going to run through each candidate and kind of discuss kind of what what their situation is going into the debate, uh, what may have happened that was an important moment for them, and what, you know, how that could have possibly changed their status. So starting with Mayor Bill de Blasio, if you're not familiar with him, he's the mayor of... New York City, you know, the largest city in the United States, and of course, the city that gets a lot of focus and a lot of attention is the home of our media and everything, and full disclosure, obviously, I'm saying this as a person from Houston, so I, I am not a New Yorker, right, uh, but, but you know, the, the New York area is very much always a focus point uh, for our nation because that's where our media and our inter- entertainment and so many other things are based. So, so Mayor de Blasio as a result has a decent national profile already, even if a lot of folks in the middle of the country probably don't know who he is. But he's got a lot of media attention and media savvy uh, as a result. Before the debate, he's going into it in that uh in that realm. He's he's well known, at least in political circles. Mayor de Blasio was very interesting in this debate. He 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 actually ended up challenging uh Congressman Beto O'Rourke uh and that was that kinda looked upon uh, one of a, a landmark moment for him is, is uh, he he really kind of went after Beto O'Rourke on the support uh, for private insurance and and questioning why he didn't want you know some sort of universal health care or medical Medicare for all and Governor um, I'm sorry Mayor De Blasio was the First candidate to really launch into attack mode, and and he did it so many times to the point that it, it kind of became uh, very um, aggressive, and it, it kind of started turning people off. I think it you know uh, throughout the debate, he did come through with some some decent points, but he kind of overused that tactic, and it didn't turn out well in his favor by by the end of the day. Uh, the next person to discuss is Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan <clears throat> going into the debate. You know, he is a congressperson from Ohio, from a swing state. And even that he's from a very swing district that includes places like Youngstown and st- things like that. Um, but obviously is just a member of Congress, one of 435 people. He doesn't have a huge national profile. He hasn't really done much to to break out uh previous to this and his campaign is just getting started. So so no big national profile, uh, unknown outside the state of Ohio. And he had a couple of interesting moments. You know, he, he kind of played de- defense uh, as somebody that is is really more so of a centrist for the party, but nothing that was too uh, super memorable at this point for Congressman uh, Tim Ryan. Um, he, he did, you know, he did get a little bit of speaking time depending on the issue, but, but it wasn't something that really is, is uh, much of a standout, uh, to, to say the least. So, so that's what happened with Tim Ryan in the debate. Uh, now we get to former San Antonio mayor and HUD secretary under the Obama administration, Julian Castro. So Julian Castro has had has a very interesting history uh, for those of us that are Texans and have followed his story well. Uh, we all know that he was a very popular mayor of San Antonio, not just, not just any old mayor of San Antonio. And, and one thing that is important to recognize in this, uh, that it's easy to forget about uh, Secretary Castro because it's been so long since he's been mayor. San Antonio is one of the largest cities in the country with nearly 2 million people in population, which means that someone like Julian Castro, being the executive of such a large place, he is uh, in charge of more people than a lot of American states have within their borders. So the city of San Antonio with 2 million people is larger than many American states like Montana and Alaska, et cetera, from a population standpoint. So he has a major platform for executive experience, but people haven't seen that in a long while. He was secretary. He went up to Washington. You know, Julian, uh, as Texans very well know, passed up on the 2018 election cycle. And a lot of people still kind of you know, grimace at that, uh, that he, that he really didn't take advantage of something that could have been so great for the state of Texas if he had uh, chosen to run for governor or something like that. Instead, he chose to sit out and go at the presidential, uh, level. That said, in night one of the debate, uh, Julian Castro had some very important moments. Uh, he was able to hammer in uh, police strength uh, and hammer in some policy strength, uh, while also taking O'Rourke down a couple of pegs uh, in terms of uh, certain specific things. Specifically, uh, arguing with O'Rourke about immigration, saying that um, you know he made a very big point about you know. Things, concrete things that he wanted to do to help immigration reform, both in executive orders and one of the big executive orders was repealing Section 3125 of the immigration uh, enforcement code. So, so he really was able to gain some traction through several moments in this debate, and really Julian Castro, <coughs> excuse me, became the breakout star of night one of these debates. Uh, he was able to do that, especially at the sacrifice of O'Rourke. So, so he really laid into Bet- Beto O'Rourke. And how interesting to have the two Texans in such a big kerfuffle uh, during this debate. But that's what happened, is, is Julian Castro employed a tactic not dissimilar from Bill de Blasio, but he was able to use it just sparingly enough. And and really focused his attention on Beto O'Rourke uh, to be able to take that to advantage, and he had such incredible moments during the debate. Uh, Julian Castro uh, used his understanding and and diverse perspective much to his advantage. He was able to uh, you know court not just those in the Latino community, which of, of which he is uh, very much a part, but he also spoke to racial injustice in terms of African-American community and other persons of color. So, so he really has done that. And of course is the one that has the policy proposals to back it up. This is the big moment that Julian Castro had. Of course, he was going after Beta O'Rourke, but what he was able to do in bringing up that very specific policy proposal of uh, of repealing Section 3125 is he was able to take the entire debate focus and shift it from uh, centering around Elizabeth Warren and everybody had to, to go to a screeching halt and go back to... Julian Castro's proposal. That is debate 101. That's how you pull focus. That's how you do the thing to get into the next tier. And he was able to do it. I think I got my numbers mixed up a little bit. I think it's 1325, so apologies on that. But the policy number, he was able to do that. And then you had every candidate on that stage responding to what Julian Castro proposed, and that was the moment that he needed. Uh, up to this point, his campaign has been rather slow. It's been it's been a slow builder, you know. Not to say that he hasn't been, you know, working very hard, but it's just he hasn't gained a lot of traction. But in night one of these debates, he was the standout person. On to Senator Cory Booker. Who certainly did not do a bad job at all he had he had some very important moments in this debate, I think amongst his best uh, he he really discussed uh, more black Americans under criminal supervision now in in two thousand and nineteen than there were that were enslaved entirely uh, in eighteen fifty you know he made some very important points on. Race and racial uh, justice as well, uh, Cory Booker is a very interesting communicator you know he 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 has such a great charisma to him, and he really knows how to clarify his points, but also remain very positive and 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 do things. I think he was amongst the best candidates in terms of like looking looking at the world past Donald Trump. And and he allowed you to kind of imagine like because everybody is so mired in the Trump administration right now, but imagining a Booker presidency and imagining you know life after Donald Trump and that that's an important thing that's an important point uh, both Booker and Castro really also stood up, stood up for the trans community, which was, which was very well noticed. You know, Both of them mentioned the trans community, the transgender community in terms of uh, Castro, in terms of women's health, and uh, Booker in terms of just overall equality issues. And, and that was important because they, they're showing that they really want to stand up for, for that segment of society, which is so vulnerable and under threat uh, constantly. Then we move to our front runner of this particular debate, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who, no surprise, you know she is she's a front runner for a reason because she's very, very good at what she does. Uh, Senator Warren was consistent throughout. You know, the, the the debate debate mostly revolved around her, especially in the first hour. Um, some of her kind of best uh, moments here. You know, she she really discussed v- gun violence as a public health issue uh and that was that was a big moment for her is is really equating that to a public health issue and and, and looking at it from that perspective um but for all of the plans that in tout on her uh, on the campaign trail some of her answers uh, uh on uh, Senate gridlock, especially, left much to be desired. You know, see, she's the person that goes around the country going, I, I got a plan. I got a plan for that. But and then when asked about Senate gridlock, if you're still having to face uh, Mitch McConnell, she kind of came up short on that answer, which was uh, rather surprising for Senator Warren. But at the same time, you know, even though she came up short, none of the other candidates really challenged her. They kind of, they kind of let her, uh, slide throughout the debate. They, they started focusing on themselves. And like I said, the person that ended up being attacked the most actually was Beto O'Rourke. So Senator Warren kind of was able to get through all of that and stay in, uh, front-runner status rather comfortably. Uh, next up, we have Governor Jay Inslee, who is the governor of Washington State. Going into this debate, uh, he, he really was able to tout his gubernatorial experience and his strong policies, uh, especially when we focus on climate change. Of course, the state of Washington is one of our national leaders in terms of climate policy and the things that they've been able to do, and Inslee has been integral to that. So, so he had that going into it. That said, Actual performance of the debate fell somewhat flat. Um, he 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 was able to kind of tread water throughout uh, the debate, but he you know he did mention climate policy and climate change, but he just didn't stand out quite as much. Until the very end, when, when I think his best moment occurred, uh, uh, they asked every single candidate around the room, you know, what is the greatest threat to American security? And he was very uh, clear to say the greatest threat to security is Donald Trump. As opposed to a country like Russia or China or something like that, and that was a big applause line for him so that was that was a massive moment for Governor Inslee um, right there at the very end when when you really want it most so he he didn't stand out so much uh in this debate he's he's kind of somebody that that was more of the the back tier candidate and and he remains so after uh this this first debate uh, then we have congressman John Delaney so he he was a well-liked uh congressperson when he was uh when he was serving, and he's also uh, was touting a bunch of his business experience, so that's that's what he feels like he brings to the table is, is very significant business experience. During the Obama administration, he was one of the business persons that uh, President Obama reached out to in terms of uh, that were really conducting best practices, so so he was able to tout that, and, and that's a big deal, you know, in terms of those that are inspired by business people. Uh, But status before the debate, he, you know, was virtually unknown, especially to those of us that are maybe in the middle of the country and don't have much to do with Washington. So so he was looking for a big breakout moment. And I don't I wouldn't say that he really found one in this debate. Uh, he, He did. He did mention some, you know. He did make a couple of good points. Um, Delaney also is is rather a centrist. He's probably somebody that is that is probably furthest to the right in this entire group. So so he really could have used that more to his advantage to really uh, say stand diametrically opposed to Senator Warren, but he just didn't do much of that. And he kind of he kind of cowtowed a little bit like i said on the on the centrist vein uh when they were questioning speaker Pelosi's uh recent actions with the Mueller report. he actually said, "Well, I support speaker Pelosi's decision, whatever it is Ugh, that's that's not a great line you're you're a presidential candidate, dude you're supposed to be standing up and being um independent, so you can't just." go with whatever, um, you know, so that, that was a moment, at least that, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way um, from somebody that's seeking to be the decision maker in chief, right? Um, but that was uh, Congressman Delaney and, and his performance in the debate. Again, you know, others may have, you know, really been, uh, you know, attracted to certain things that he may have said, but, but none of it really landed for me uh, in, in this particular debate. Next up, uh, somebody that Texans know very well, the other Texan in the race, former Texas Congressperson Beto O'Rourke. Of course, going into this debate, he has been such an interesting national figure, uh, very charismatic. Uh, Obviously, Beto O'Rourke has has established himself as an effective communicator. That's how he was able to get as far as he did in 2018, and then transfer all of that that good energy into the twenty twenty race. When he declared for that, uh, he obviously already had his big national breakout moment in twenty eighteen, running for the Senate in the state of Texas, and coming so close to having achieved that goal. And of course, you know this evaluation is is given the fact that you know I happen to be somebody that worked very tirelessly for uh, O'Rourke during the Senate campaign and, and supported him as far as I possibly could. Watched literally maybe close to a hundred hours of his live streams on Facebook as he, as he crisscrossed the state of Texas. Uh, so, uh, you know, former supporter of Beto O'Rourke. That said, having met Congressman O'Rourke, knowing how good he is on the stump, Knowing how well of a speaker he is and how, how his style, uh, how, how it is to hear him speak when his style is utilized at maximum advantage, he, he did not show up for this debate. You know, he, he tends to speak in anecdotes. That's not a surprise to anyone, you know, so if he's asked a direct question, he's gonna take the scenic route to get to the answer of that question. Uh, you know, some people that were kind of getting to know him for the first time were probably shocked by the fact that he just kind of really blew off one of the early questions entirely. That's not a surprise for folks that, that know him already. They know, they know his style. They know who he is. So, so it's not a surprise to hear him blow off a question. But that said uh Congressman O'Rourke just really didn't have it uh for this debate unfortunately he he was he was vulnerable and left so for uh other candidates to kind of come in and and really swoop in for the kill uh as Secretary Castro was able to do very effectively so he 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 gave some decent answers and he remained kind of the focus of the group you know I'd say almost probably number two or three in focus after, uh, Elizabeth Warren, but he just didn't deliver on some of his greatest attributes for this debate. So, so Congressman O'Rourke, you know, he, he, that's not to say that he doesn't have a very strong following and, and, and that he hurt himself, uh, tremendously, but probably, you know, you could, you could conceivably see that a couple of the points that he was comfortably utilizing, could be shifting Castro's direction. That's, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, assumption anyway at this point. And next up is Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Amy Klobuchar is a well-respected centrist and she definitely brings some decent policy issues. I think her greatest strength is, is touting her experience in the United States Senate in a Senate that is well in gridlock and, and well in, a, you know, they call it the Senate graveyard nowadays, uh, Amy Klobuchar t- tends to stand out as somebody that that has had much success working across the aisle. Um, she, she really is somebody that has a lot of respect and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, influence within Washington, especially. And that's not a negative to say she's a you know, monster, swamp monster or anything. She definitely is not. Um, but she's just well respected people, people, people appreciate her and appreciate her viewpoints. She's one of the people that, that they often call on when things get, become, uh, come to an impasse. Uh, and that said, it was very interesting to watch Senator Klobuchar in this debate. In some respects, she was one of the best performers in this debate. She, she brought a fair amount of policy uh, interest, but the most appealing thing about Senator Klobuchar was her style. It just really stood out amongst the rest of the candidates. She, she has this, this feeling of warmth and of inviting, of invitation that she brings to her speaking style and is is very refreshing and very apparent when compared to some of the other t- candidates that are you know many of which were in attack dog mode. It really allowed for Klobuchar to stand out and to and to and to and to have a positive experience uh, in this in this realm. Uh, some of her better moments, she was able to really steal some thunder. From Governor Inslee on women's health. So she, she really took the ball with that and, and just, uh, you know, Governor Inslee was, was kind of touting his experience, you know, and how, how much he's been a women's health champion. And, and Klobuchar was saying, well, there's three women up here on the debate stage and we've all fought, uh, you know, tirelessly for women's health as well. So he, she kind of stole that thunder from him in a very important moment. Uh, Klobuchar really, uh, like I said, from, it really has a lot to do with the, the way that she was able to deliver and the way that she was able to, to bring forth in terms of style. I think in that measure, she definitely was the best of this debate and it gave her a lot to grow on um, in, in terms of uh, rising national profile. So she, she, she definitely was one of the top performers of the debate uh, for, for many reasons. And finally, we have Hawaii Congressperson Tulsi Gabbard. So Tulsi Gabbard stands out in this particular area because she's a veteran. She brings a lot of experience to that. Uh, and she is a good speaker. Um, she's also very much in the centrist va- vein where she's, she really wants to focus more on a lot of foreign policy issues because she, she does have a tendency to to sound more like a foreign policy hawk, um, you know, in a a lot of respects. She, she's very uh, effective in communicating uh, some of her issues, but in this debate, she was a little bit, um, she came off a little bit uh, flat in some of her her responses. And then as things went, she's really started to warm up and, and, and really kind of, Kind of kept up speed later on. I think that was kind of the big, um, uh, the big point for her. And in fact, you know, her closing statement was was rather strong as well. I think her best moment in this particular debate was uh, getting Tim Ryan together on his lack of military facts. So Tim Ryan tried to tried to spout off some things about what he knew about the military, and Tulsi Gabbard absolutely shut him down automatic. So, so she, she was able to do that. And she, she has a lot to offer to the, to the field, to the candidate field. Um, And she was able to, I think she just came in under the radar to, to be able to prove that in this debate. So, so, so definitely a net positive experience for Tulsi Gabbard. Like I said, she kind of took a while to warm into it. Um, But, but she did a, a good job overall. So that's a discussion of kind of. Just rundown of all 10 candidates from night one. Uh, the overall assessment would be this. Number one, Senator Elizabeth Warren still the front runner in that situation. She didn't do any harm to herself. She didn't uh elevate herself, you know, in some huge amount of fashion. She was consistent throughout. Point two. Probably the person that moved the most in the positive direction of this night was uh, Julian Castro. He he was the one that that really had the breakout moment and and was able to step up and even knock down a couple of folks. Uh, you know, knock down a peg, a couple of other folks, particularly Beto O'Rourke. So so Julian was able to really garner some support. Uh and uh and. Stand out in a moment that he absolutely needed it uh, with a candidate with a candidacy that so far has been uh, rather stagnant. So Julian Castro definitely stood out. Amy Klobuchar, I think, right after Warren, I think she probably had the best uh, debate overall. Like I said, she didn't she didn't move the. It's not a matter of moving the needle in terms of what she needed it to do quite as much as Castro, but she really. Really had a style that was appealing to people and and very positive, you know everything that that she she said really had a, a moment of you know uh, calmness and and positivity. A lot of people say this about uh, Pete Buttigieg as well that he has kind of a, a welcoming and warming demeanor where you can you can you can speak to him. So it's it's a lot of the intangibles going on with uh, Amy Klobuchar, and that's and that's not to take away from her. You know, intelligence or anything like that. I, I, I don't want to to uh, to say that because she's very intelligent and very knowledgeable and factual. But it's a style thing. So so, so she really can communicate that so well on top of having good policy, having a good. Communicable and workable uh, sense about things, and saying, you know, I can work with progressives, I can work with conservatives, I can work with centrists, and 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 really get things done. And that's where her focus is. So she had a, she had a rather good debate, uh, all things considered. I, I think she she did a good job in that whole situation. After that, it kind of falls flat once you get past Warren and Klobuchar and Castro. Uh, you know, it's, I think everybody had their little bit of moment. And of course, with these debates, it's the most important thing is not who won and who lost. The goal in a, in a situation like this, especially a forum of 10 people, you know, each night, it's it's more about finding your people, getting a national audience and saying, okay, this is the person you know finding somebody that connects with you and finding someone that's that's willing to move to that next level up in your campaign and just a point of personal privilege this is this feels so uh, so correlative with the world of what a lot of us do in music uh, you know myself I'm a musician and I have musician friends and things it's very much the same you're trying to find your fans. You're trying to find your people, those those persons that are going to be there at every concert. They're going to buy all the T-shirts. They're going to be the first people in line to take the photographs and, and and get all of the merch that you need. That's what these presidential candidates need right now. They need folks that are out there singing their song. Block walking their blocks and making phone calls on their behalf. That's, that's what they're trying to recruit. That's the whole purpose of this debate. So so if you can, even if you don't have the biggest night ever, if you can deliver that one line or that one moment that finds your people, you you've won in a debate situation. And so I think there was enough there, particularly in night one for each of these candidates to kind of, to be able to claim their moment. I think that's a, I think that's a positive thing for them all. But that said, the top performers for night one of the Democratic debate would certainly be Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Amy Klobuchar, Secretary Juliana Castro, and Senator Cory Booker all for slightly different reasons as well. With Senator Warren, you know, she was able to hold her own and and be very consistent with the theory of her case for her candidacy. She's able to present quite a bit of good policy and probably most importantly, the other candidates really didn't uh, attack her very much. They, they left her alone. She, she was able to present her situation, and they just mostly focused on theirs. They didn't go after Donald Trump, and they didn't go after uh, Senator Warren to try and knock her down a couple of pegs. So she really uh, she was able to really shine in that, in that event, partly from her standing and then partly because of the other candidates. Again, Senator Amy Klomashar stands out for more of the intangibles uh, in terms of her reasoning because she just had really great style and, and a wonderful, I guess you could say bedside manner if you're Comparing it to like doctors and things like that, but just just an approach that I think really appeals to a lot of people, and that's again not a judgment of you know her intelligence or anything like that. It's just that's something that that really will convince people. You know, when they're in a voting booth, that would make a difference to folks. If if you have a, a warm uh, and caring persona that comes off from the screen, that can really convince people. So so Senator Klobuchar was able to bring. Uh, a special energy that stood out from the rest of her contenders in the debate. Uh, Senator Booker, again he was he was very good because he had he landed some good uh, policy points. But amongst everybody, I think probably the person that was able to do the most to improve their standing was Secretary Castro. He he was able to present himself as as very uh, aggressive when he needed to be, uh, especially you know going after Senator Beto, um, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke. So so he really advanced himself in that realm, and then he was able to present himself also very well in terms of some some important policies that he was able to force the rest of the candidates to turn towards. So those are the types of moments that every uh, candidate would like to break out. And that's how things went for the first night of this very historic Democratic debate. And we get to night two of the first ever Democratic debate. So unlike the first night, this one was a lot more in terms of fireworks as to be expected when you have the quote unquote front runners, uh, now this time four of them are on the same, sharing the same debate stage, as opposed to just one of them and a lot of the, the what we call the second tier candidates. So so this debate had a lot more drama, had a lot more fireworks, and most importantly, it had a lot more people, you know, just going after President Trump. That was another thing that was kind of uh, missing from debate one, is, is people barely mentioned Trump. Or uh, or they mentioned him in kind of uh, off base tangents, uh saying, you know, well uh, well I actually work with the Trump administration. I could I could do that. But nobody was attacking him for all of the atrocities that he has that he has brought uh in the two and a half years that he's been in office. That changed this debate. Uh, so it was it was a very, very interesting set of dynamics for the debate. Of course, you know, this is this is historic in so many ways uh, for the Democratic Party, because, again, we've never had so many diverse voices speaking at these levels. And and I think that's something that that kind of can can be forgotten in a lot of ways uh, is that you. You want candidates that can really voice your opinion. I, I said in, in night one, I, I limited it to three candidates, but I, I do, just for two seconds, I want to make sure to mention that Cory Booker did have a good night in that as well. And, and I say that mentioning diversity, uh, especially, because it's it's important to hear, it's important for the American community to hear the fact that these diverse voices are out there. So so I'll add Cory Booker as number four into that mix from the the assessment of night one uh, candidacies. But for night two, that whole situation definitely continued in spades. But this time we really got the clash of the generations. So you'll see what I mean in just a minute. Here's our candidates that participated in night two of the Democratic debate. Marianne Williamson, the author and acclaimed faith leader and activist. Former Colorado governor, John Hickenlooper. Business magnate and entrepreneur, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang, sorry. Mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. Former Vice President, Joe Biden. Vermont Senator, and of course, the progressive stalwart, Bernie Sanders. California Senator, Kamala Harris. New York Senator, Kirsten Gillibrand. Colorado Senator, Michael Bennett. And California Congressperson, Eric Swalwell. So those are the persons that we have for the second debate. And here's how things went. Overall, like I said, it was a fiery contest in comparison to night one. And that's not to say that night one wasn't, you know, it it had a lot going on. It was, it was far from boring, uh, contrary to how President Trump declared it on his, uh, on his uh, Twitter. But it was, it was a good debate with a lot of policy and things like that. This debate had policy, but it also had fireworks. It had drama. It had accusations, shots across the bow. It had everything in spades. So it was just a real uh, firestorm of a contest. So let's go through, uh, just as we did uh, in the first analysis, let's go through with each candidate and just kind of talk about highlights for them. Uh, With Marion Williamson, such an interesting, interesting... uh, contribution to the presidential debate process, uh, she, I, I I think that she, <laughs> she, she definitely was the meme uh, starter at the end of the debate because everybody was having all of these memes about, you know, all of the things that she said and how it just didn't jive with kind of the normal political sphere. But all of that aside, I think that she actually contributed quite a bit because she, she was such an important energy shifter. You know, anytime she would speak, she came from a perspective that was just entirely outside of politics and entirely outside of the, the diagnose and, and fix, fix, fix type of situation that politicians always fall into, you know, mentioning healthcare. And the politicians are like, well, we'll have healthcare for everybody. We'll have healthcare for this. We'll have healthcare for that. Da-da-da-da-da. Government-sponsored healthcare, da-da-da. Raise your taxes and whatnot. And Marianne Williamson is, you know, she's the person that goes in, it's like, well, we need, we need wellness care, and we need to be sure that healthcare has a place in the first place. And say, Well, okay, people can do these other things. She, she just brought such a different perspective. And and really flipped those perspectives on their head uh, with her comments. And it it, it worked most of the time. It wasn't really, it it was awkward a couple of times, but it worked most of the time. I think uh, her strongest moment really was connecting the immigration challenges that the U.S. is currently facing to our shameful neglect of assisting Latin American countries right now. That's something we just don't talk about enough at all. The Trump administration blames these kids and blames these families for rushing across the border knowing full well that they have left those countries on their own. These, you know, Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala, these are the same three places that people are fleeing because of rampant violence and such deplorable conditions down there. The U.S. has completely pulled out of aiding and assisting these countries to try and help stabilize anything. So it shouldn't be a surprise that we have record numbers of people trying to cross the border, you know, 140,000 folks in May. You know, they never want to talk about that side, but Marion Williams brought it and brought it at the exact right time to say shame on the Trump administration for neglecting these folks in the countries where they live. Points. Oh, I'm coming back to Cory Booker because he was the person that mentioned that in the first night of the debate, and I do want to I do want to make sure that that is that that is said. Um, but moving on to John Hickenlooper. So he was, he was a good candidate. He was, he was interesting. It didn't have, you know, too many super breakout moments, I think. Uh, you know, he, he kind of fell flat a little bit, you know, especially given his, his resume as, as governor of Colorado, he had, he has really achieved so much. As you know, Colorado was the first, uh, one of the first states to expand marijuana, uh, to legalize marijuana and, and has, has really, uh, made a financial uh positive of that in so many ways um and all of that was was under the leadership of john higgenlooper um so so that was his best moment was touting his gubernatorial experience really right at the beginning and and championing uh centrist progress as opposed to uh, unabashed progressivism, he he did the whole socialism warning thing, and you know, of course, as a progressive, I I just I, I really grimace at that to say, well, there's nothing necessarily wrong with being called a socialist. I don't have a problem being called a socialist, especially if socialist is a way to solve problems. It's not just a dirty word on its own. You have to explain what socialism means. And it's not the same as, as some dictatorship or anything. So you can't just be afraid of the word. That's not an answer. You know, Republicans are going to call people socialists all the time. This is what he was, he was responding to, saying, well, Dale, the Republicans will call us socialists. They call us everything else so that's not a surprise um, but but yeah so so that was a, that was a point for Hickenlooper you know he he is a centrist and he's not ashamed of it. Um, I think he could have been a little more bold in conveying that and conveying what he was able to do in Colorado. so he kind of fell flat on that. he, he said it at the beginning but then just kind of it, it didn't quite pan out the rest of the way. On to business magnate and entrepreneur Andrew Yang. Yang really, oh, he suffered so much because he really got, I I don't know the exact number, but it couldn't have been more than five minutes of speaking time. I want to say it was was probably less than five minutes, uh, you know, you, you can you can certainly look this up. I'm sure there'll be some articles or something on it soon. But he just he just rarely spoke at all. So he didn't get a lot of chances to really uh, get into anything. And unlike uh, some folks, he didn't uh, take the opportunity to really jump in to a lot of the big debates. He was trying to to lay back and listen and be more civil than some of the other candidates. Um, but so that said, he kind of got left behind in terms of really gathering speaking time. Um, but I think his best moment was when he, when he actually was addressed uh, about his central issue. Um, you know, uh, Andrew Yang, uh, his, his candidacy is really built around the notion of having a universal basic income, giving every American uh, $1,000 a month to be able to do whatever they need to do with as a source of security. Um, And recognizing that as our economy changes, uh, you know, our, our industrial, you know, we used to be an industrial economy and then we became a manufacturing economy, but now we're transitioning into a digital economy where a lot of things that you used to make, you know, what, what used to be things that, that would employ people in factories to actually make those things are becoming digital digitized. You don't actually need people to make factories. Ask any musician this we we have evidence of this all the time when we used to be carrying around these hunky metronomes and tuners and things like that well people had to make those tuners and they had to make those metronomes now those are apps on your phone and that's how everything is going so, so we see that, and we see the writing on the wall there anyway, is, is you're transitioning from people that actually put widgets together uh, in, in the economy, and, and then they're going to writing code to be able to perform the functions. So, so Andrew Yang has really made that the central part of, uh, of his candidacy, is saying, well, we need to envelop a universal basic income so that we can take care of folks. Um, but anyway, back to how he did in the debate. That was, his, that was his point was uh, after he discussed uh, universal basic income briefly, uh, he also was able to go after the zero tax rates for big corporations under the Trump administration. When discussing UBI, they asked him how he would pay for it. And he said, well, you know, I'll make sure to, you know, charge these companies taxes again, because under the, the Trump administration, they're being let completely off the hook. So, so I thought that was a very strong answer for him. uh, The one time he had a chance to really answer something. And then of course, you can't mention the debate without mentioning the fact that he didn't wear a tie. He did not wear a tie. And of course, everybody had to comment about it. You know, it, it did feel a little awkward. Not going to lie, because we, we've all been indoctrinated by seeing presidential debates. It's one of the things that we all know that you should be taking seriously. And not wearing a tie, even for us millennials, uh, does feel like it, it, it felt just less important. So, so I think that's, uh, you know, does that have anything to do with the fact that he got less speaking time? Good question. Good question. I think, and that's something that that someone will have to ask at some point. But Andrew Yang, for the time that he did have, he was able to use it well, but he just he just didn't have very much. On to one of our other major candidates, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg. So Mayor Pete, in recent weeks, you know, he's he's of course been a very good candidate uh, on the campaign trail since he kind of broke out earlier in the year. But in recent weeks, he's really had some challenges with some things going on at home. He's had uh, some spouts of police brutality and uh, persons that, that uh, in South Bend, Indiana, where uh, the police chief has come under a lot of fire uh, for, for malpractice that's been going on in the police department. And people are really wanting to discuss that with Mayor Pete. And so he's had some challenges with that. Uh, and, and even to the point where some people are calling for him to step out of the presidential race and get back to South Bend and try to fix things. Well, hopefully his debate performance tonight would, would suggest that he can, he can do both. Uh, because Mayor Pete, you know, he performed well enough. Um, I, I thought he, he was very good on some points. Uh, and he was, he was pretty typical of, you know, representing of, of what he's able to bring to the table. Um, you know, so not unlike Elizabeth Warren in the first night, he was consistent with his answers. He, he also was able to stay above the fray for a lot of the, the other things, and, and he didn't have to do much of the attack dog mode as some of the other candidates did. I, I think his best moment in, in the debate was uh, really convicting the Republican Party on their supposed Christian values, while they ruthlessly separate families and mistreat children at the nation's border. That was so important to say. It was so important to get that information out there that if the Republican Party professes themselves to be so religious and so Christian. Why do they continue to do this and treat these children so terribly, treat these families so terribly? It's it's, it's, it's hypocrisy at its core, and it's, it's just unacceptable. And Pete was able to, Mayor Pete, I'm sorry, uh, was able to convey that very, very well in the debate. I thought it was a very strong moment for him. And then we have our former Vice President, Joe Biden. Here we go. So for this debate, the attack was on Vice President Biden. He is the front-runner, the undisputed front-runner of the Democratic Party right now, and the candidates let him know it. In particular, Senator Kamala Harris let him know it. So so Joe Biden was the one to beat and the one to, to clobber, and and have to say he did... He did get owned a couple of times uh, in this in this particular debate, so he he didn't do badly by any stretch of the imagination. You know, he he uh, he. I wouldn't say that his station is diminished per se from this debate, but unlike Warren in night one, uh, he he left with a couple of battle scars. Um, I think that's that's more than fair to say. But Joe Biden, he 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 delivered you know, fair points. He stayed mostly on message uh, with what he was doing. Um, he, he just still has a lot of things that he has to kind of wrestle with in his record. and And that's not necessarily going away. So, so, but the other candidates were able to let him have it on that. On to Senator Bernie Sanders, who again was rather consistent in this debate, you know, so he, he has a he has a very uh, well known style of campaigning at this point, so he's very direct, and he always sounds like he's kind of angry, and and you know anytime he's talking about things, and you have to kind of turn that off. You just basically either love it or hate it. But uh, Senator Sanders brought exactly that to this debate. I think uh, I guess in comparison to some things that he did uh, in the twenty sixteen cycle, uh, you know it's interesting because a lot of people would say that they maybe like this version of Bernie Sanders a little better than than the 2016 cycle and I would have to agree with that. He's he's just more uh it, it feels like he has learned quite a bit since that time in particular respect to diversity and to uh racial issues. So so he's 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 demonstrating that and he's he's doing a decent job. Um definitely definitely Bernie Sanders best moment of this debate was just, I think it was right near the top, going after Donald Trump and just really just calling spades, spades. Uh, He was the person that did that the most directly in the second debate. He just went after Donald Trump, he called him a liar and a fraud. And he said, you know, the American people do not have to put up with this. And so I thought that was very good. He he was very strong on, on Medicare for all uh, throughout the evening, even as other candidates did. That was the point where other candidates were able to really attack his policies. I don't think they necessarily attacked him, but uh, his policies for sure. For sure. Um, And he was, he just held his ground to that and said, nope, this is the way that I want to do it. Now, one caveat with Bernie Sanders, which is the same, you know, thing that we knew of him from 2016, when the moderators would continually ask him, how are you going to do these things? How are you going to do this? He, he never really has an answer for that. He says, well, we have to have a democratic house and a democratic Senate and, and all of that. But that's not a realistic path forward to governing. Pete Buttigieg was the person that kind of passively called him out. He didn't use Bernie Sanders' name directly uh, for it, but that's that's a moment that he was able to kind of steal a little bit of thunder from Sanders, saying, "Well, you know, you have to have you have to have a pathway to get to universal health care. It can't just be everybody's going to have it." You know, and and then Bernie Sanders did admit that the only way to possibly make that happen is to raise taxes. That's that's a duh, you know. And and of course, you know, conservatives and Republicans, that's that's fire starter for them. Oh no, you can never raise taxes. You can never raise taxes. But as Bernie Sanders basically stated, I think a lot of people, if they really understood what a tax increase would mean. In exchange for like never having to pay a deductible and never having to pay all these outside costs for healthcare, basically showing up to the hospital and saying I need help, and then going home. If they understood what that in- increased tax really meant, I don't think it would be as much of an issue. Of course, that would be the socialist <laughs> uh, perspective. So you know, but but Sanders. He was Sanders through and through. I think that's the best way to to describe it. And on to our big breakout person of the the second evening of debates, it would be none other than California Senator Kamala Harris. So going into this whole situation, Kamala Harris has run a decent campaign. She's not she wasn't a front runner front runner like uh, Joseph Biden. She she has just been a steady uh, gainer and and very slow climb but she's she's well under uh, well out of that one percent range and has held consistency on the campaign trail. but the thing with Kamala Harris is every time the media says this often about her and it's absolutely true every time she has a moment to shine, she has taken that moment and done the most with it. The She the People Forum, which was held in Houston earlier, uh, a couple months back, and, and it was covered in an earlier in Aggressive Voices episode, says this as well. She took that moment and really ran with it. No different in these debates. Kamala Harris was the person to contend with in this cycle of debate. So she started out, she was able to go after Joe Biden on a series of things. But she even took on the entirety of the debate stage, playing mom for a second. Uh, this was really one of her, her better moments uh, here. You know, after everyone in the debate just kind of broke out into, into senseless shouting, Kamala Harris, without any help from the moderators, was able to quell the entire crowd by saying, Hey, guys. America does not want to witness a food fight they want to know how we're going to put food on their tables so so she shut down the whole thing at the debate and caused the crowd to simply roar after doing that so so Kamala Harris really she she brings this this wonderful mix of charisma and and ease but at the same time so much authority authority, and so much passion with what she says. And they just kind of all meet in this beautiful, uh, this beautiful mosaic that, that she's just able to really harness. She she has the charisma and things that just really convince you to let you know that she could really do this job. And I think a lot of it has to stem from the fact that she's a, she's an expert prosecutor. You know, it not unlike any time she's Uh, up at the Senate Judiciary Committee, you know, whoever's being grilled at that time knows that they have to fear Kamala Harris. And she brought that savvy to this debate. It It was very, very interesting to see. But that was a big moment. And of course, she was the person that was going after Joe Biden. And and she has such a great style of how she does this. It's it's complete opposite of, of Bill de Blasio where he's just kind of uh he, he was just kind of on night one, he was just kind of really pegging in and, and and kind of doing it in a in a borderline annoying way. Uh Kamala Harris, you know, she'll she'll she would turn to Joseph Biden and she say, you know, oh, I I I respect you, uh Vice President Biden and, and everything that you've done in your long career." And she she says it in such a way, but then she just lays into him. So so she really took maximum advantage when the the panel was discussing race and she brought that entire point. She started out by saying, you know, talk about her personal experience and then she turned that personal experience directly to Joseph Biden. This is the kind of stuff that we have not seen since Bill Clinton. That's that was almost a Clintonian moment how everything is made into the personal and 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 then therefore Kamala Harris was able to hold Her own personal power and use it to convict the other person. In this instance, it was discussing busing. So, uh, if you're not aware, Joseph Biden, who of course was a senator since the 70s, uh, one of his early adoption positions was he actually opposed federal busing uh, by the Department of Education. And busing was a very important thing for a lot of students of color because they may not have lived near uh, some of the best educational institutions where they were gonna go. So when integration happened, they they mandated busing uh, to be able to carry students to certain places. And almost any African-American child, any black child, any brown child may have had experience with this, whether whether you even know it or not. Uh, a lot of folks are are bussed into into very uh certain areas even myself growing up in the early 80s my cousins were bussed to a different part of town to go to elementary school and that was due in part to the fact that those were mandated by the department of education as part of brown versus the board of education the the fallout from that and so so bussing is is a regular part of lives for for, for black and brown kids. And uh the fact that Joe Biden opposed that, he, he opposed it for a very long time, until like nineteen seventy-eight, until twenty years after Brown versus the Board of Education, uh the, the Supreme Court case happened, which mandated that uh children had to have equal access to education. Um so so that's a noose that uh hangs around you know Biden's neck Uh, you know, and it's something that's probably not going to go away anytime soon in this campaign. Um, he, he was given the opportunity to try and explain himself in the debate and he didn't do a very good job, uh, on that particular point. So that's something that probably will come up again. And of course this, I think what makes this even more important is it's, it's the continuation of what already happened, uh, earlier, uh, you know, a week ago before the debates where, where Biden was, uh, you know, trying to stand up for one of the senators that, is a, that was a known uh, racist saying, well, that was, senator was a friend of mine and they used to call me son and they call other people boy. You know, he, he just really either doesn't understand the, the racial insensitivity going on with that or, or maybe it's just it's just something he doesn't uh, wish to revisit, but it just caused a difficult moment uh, between him and Cory Booker. Uh, you know, Booker uh, responded to that. And so uh, Harris was very smart to utilize that situation, make it personal for herself, while at the same time attacking uh, a very, uh, an increasingly challenging portion of Biden's record. You know, as someone that is running in the 21st century, Eventually, you have to be responsible to the the electorate that is going to elect you now. These are folks. We live in 2019. We don't live in the 70s. So, so you have to answer for those things. It's not unlike when Hillary Clinton was having so many issues with younger African Americans because she had that comment in the 90s. We have to bring them to heal. That's the same thing, folks. And and surprise. Biden has very similar comments. I can't remember them at this time, but Biden is on tape saying some really awful things too. He's a candidate where everybody everybody respects him. You know, nobody's going to disrespect him. But the question is, is he prepared for the job of president in 2020, in 2021? That's the question that has to be answered here. And Kamala Harris was able to really maximum advantage that point. So so, kudos to Kamala. She she that was the breakout moment. That was one of the basically two or three breakout moments she had in in the space. She really really turned it on, um, and and really focused all of that attention. Uh, was able to shift it from Biden to to her. I mean that's that's basically all there is to say about it uh, with Kamala Harris. Uh, next up is Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from from New York. Um, she had some good moments in this debate I, I i I liked a lot of what uh Senator Gillibrand was saying uh and even above that, I liked the fact that uh the the thing that was probably best about her in this debate is that she kind of she was she was monitoring the movement of of and the flow of the topics and everything, and she made sure to get in even if it was at the last second, she wanted to be a part of the conversation. She never wanted to have a conversation go without her commenting on things and, and being a part. So she really was was one of the people that just, she said, I'm gonna jump in there. I'm not gonna let them, you know, uh, tell me when I can come in and, and, and not. And, and she was just, she just kept in the mix of of the whole debate. And so that was that was pretty apparent. And so she she really tried hard to make a lot of her stronger points. She wasn't always successful, but at least she got in there to try and uh, you know get a couple of words in even on on basically every subject area. So she, so she was good. That was a that was a great way to show uh that she wouldn't be uh labeled down and it it was a, it was a the right mix of of aggressive behavior uh but then also being respectful to her to her colleagues. Um I think her best moment of the night really was when uh she was discussing women's health and discussing her uh experience as a senator uh on women's health issues. So so, so she did that very effectively. Um and 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 talking about uh you know what it takes to actually protect women's rights, and how it's much harder than than some people give credit for. So, so Kirsten Gillibrand, she she performed well. It wasn't it wasn't the best performance, but you know, like I said, the the best thing that she did was stay in the mix of all the topics. And next up, we have Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. So, so he was somebody. Um, that he he had some he he had a couple of good moments uh, I think uh, best among them he was able to to really land and and call out uh, Vice President Biden uh, just just really catch him flat footed on on something uh, Pres- uh, Vice President Biden said when they were discussing taxes uh, he he claimed that the Obama administration had yielded a tax. Increase out of the the Republican-controlled Senate, and that's uh, that's that's really complicated. But it's not exactly what happened. Uh, this was in the fiscal cliff situation, which I believe was either. Oh goodness! Uh, I think it was 2012 or 2011. I can't remember exactly, but but it was uh, when the Senate was facing a holiday break and, and everybody was gridlocked and and they were trying desperately to pass uh, legislation. Uh, the Obama administration said, "No, we 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 cannot keep this tax rate where it is," and. Uh, McConnell and everybody said, well no, we want to, we want to lower taxes. And so basically what ended up happening it wasn't it wasn't a tax increase, but basically the Bush tax cuts just got passed into perpetuity instead of being allowed to instead of the Senate negotiating and raising taxes because they refused to do so, the taxes uh, which were already uh, falsely lowered a little bit, uh, the taxes slightly increased on high income earners because that set of tax cuts expired. And Senator Bennett was was very quick to correct uh, Vice President Biden and say, well, no, that wasn't a tax increase. That wasn't a tax raise that the Obama administration did on its own. They just let the tax increase go through. Um, so, so the Republicans didn't, a lot that. So he, so he kind of shot back on that and said, well, no, you, you can't really claim that because it was already going to happen if you did nothing. And that's what, that's what happened is they did nothing. So, so he had a, he had a good moment on that. He, he, he gave some, some pretty good answers, some positive answers, but it, 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 net positive, I think, but it, he didn't really, uh, you know, move his standing up per se so much. So, so that was Senator Mac- Michael Bennett and finally, we get to our last candidate in this debate. Uh, this is Congressman Eric Swalwell. So Eric Swalwell, very interesting guy. Uh, he's he's a current congressman. Uh, he is very much in the young class, uh, only one year older than uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And, and he was very quick to mention that and to, and to make that a focus of his campaign. Now that has some dangers because, you know, you can't get to the presidency by just recruiting younger voters. You have to bring older voters uh, forward with you. So he took probably the biggest direct jab at uh, Biden and, and even tried it again with Bernie Sanders in, in really going after their age. Um, He, he used a speech that Vice President Biden gave in the 1980s to a California convention when when Swalwell was like six years old or something like that, saying we have to pass the torch. And he used it in such a way, he said, well, you know, Senator Biden said this at the time, we have to pass the torch. And I absolutely agree with him. We have to pass the torch. And so he twisted, uh, he didn't twist, but he turned Biden's former comments against him to to, uh, to really deflate his case for the race. And so that was a big moment. And it was a hugely effective moment in a debate. But then you go out into the real world and you realize that, okay, I can't just be against older voters, right? You, you know, some people are not going to be positive to that because you're leaving them out. So that it works in the moment, and then maybe it doesn't work as much if you're trying to have a viable candidacy. Um, Swalwell, you know, his the center of his campaign has been uh gun reform, and so he he talked very credibly about that and had a very powerful moment uh again making things uh you know he was he was probably the next best person after Harris in terms of making things into a personal situation um and he talked about being a father of a of a two year old child a young child that's that's growing up in a world where you know you have to uh, look at their clo- look at their wardrobe and, and make sure you know, to know exactly what they're wearing in, in case you had to identify them later. I mean it was oh, such a horrifying uh, image, but you know sad sad but true in, in the current world that we live in. And he was, he was really able to, to, to really drive that point home. And, and he's focused so much on uh, gun legislation, uh, on gun reform, as as the centerpiece of his campaign. So it was important for his voice to be there and for the other candidates to really have to, you know, he was able to drag them with him uh, you know, to to have more aggressive legislation on guns. Um so so Congressman Swalwell, he he was not a bad performer by any means. Um and I think he did himself some, some positives uh, for this evening, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the moments he had were few, but they were very strong. So that's debate number two. And I think the overall assessment would be that uh, number one, far and away the breakout star was Senator Kamala Harris. And she was really able to lay into bite and she was able to really take some advantage points and And utilize them and and really uh uh charge at uh Vice President Biden with him, that said, I don't know if she necessarily knocked Biden down a whole much a whole bunch as much as it is that she helped herself to rise um and I think uh Senator Sanders had a good night uh Congressman Swalwell had a very good night uh uh Mayor Pete Buttigieg had a good night. I think that his big thing he didn't have any like he had a couple of big moments but the most important thing for him was just to have the consistency there so I think that he he had a good night as well uh, I don't know if necessarily anybody performed really terribly in this debate I, I you know I, I think the, the the first debate probably had the the least uh, interesting folks uh, you know the, the persons that didn't perform well really didn't perform well compared to the second debate so so all the action was in the second debate and the, the second debate far and away had some of the best performances. Um, you know, so that was, so it was very, very interesting. It was a gra- I mean, that was a, you know, that's, they'll all be studied, studied in the history books, but I think in particular that second debate, it really represents a shift in our country and a shift in how power is discussed and displayed in our country. Because to have someone like Kamala Harris, who is this African-American, Asian-American woman, that can that can attest to her personal experience with bussing talking to a person that was in the senate at that time making that legislation when she was a young child i mean that is a moment that you that's a moment that just is so historic. And I mean, I think it will be studied for generations uh, in terms of this particular debate. Um, so so, so, really, really exciting couple of debates. And it has been so much fun actually covering them as part of the uh, Ingressive Voices podcast and getting to discuss all of the candidates. So, so the last thing I'll say on this is that there's still a couple of candidates out there that we need to keep on our radar. Uh, most uh, important among them would be Governor of Montana, Steve Bullock, who did not qualify for the debates in this first round because he just started out with his campaign. He he claims that he waited until the end of the Montana legislature and was was really enwrapped in that before he could actually declare for his candidacy. Uh, Congressman Joe Sestak also joined uh, not to. Uh, long ago. And there's another uh, couple of Congress people in there, but there's really 25 candidates in total. And so we'll have to watch and see if they're able to get into the fray for the July 30th and 31st debates. But after these first couple of nights, I think it's very reasonable that we probably won't have 20 candidates anymore. I think that some of the folks will will be able to naturally fall away uh, and and look into some other things. Uh Point of personal privilege. I hope that a couple of those folks that do fall away also consider running for the United States Senate, because we've got so many senators in the mix right now, and we really need folks that that can consider uh, running for Senate and making sure that Democrats can actually take the Senate back in 2020. That's that's the thing that is so scary about having such a robust robust presidential field is we 've got to have folks running for other offices, so that 's something for f- people to consider is they need to think about uh life after their presidential moment and that 's the coverage of the uh of the uh debates it's been it 's been a crazy time. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really something, and what an exciting moment to get to cover it as Ingressive Voices. And that's it, peeps. Thanks so much for taking in this episode of Ingressive Voices. Until next time, I'm Wayne Ashley.